Father, indeed, Lord, you are, you are to be praised. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our worship, Lord. Father, you are a good God. You are loving. You are almighty. You are transcendent. You are above everything. But yet you came down. You came down and you sent your own son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. So that we can be reconciled with you. So that we can come to you. So that we can approach you every day. Every time we want to approach you, Lord, we can. We can just approach you and just call you Abba, Father. We are thankful, Lord. In the promise and in the pain, we know that you are there. We know that you're not just a merciful God. You're not just a forgiving God. You're not just a loving God. But you are a good God. You're a good Father. So this morning as we praise you, as we lift up our voices to you, Lord, may you be pleased with everything that comes out from our mouth. Lord, see our heart. Look into our hearts, Lord. Correct, rebuke us, strengthen us, encourage us, refresh our soul. We will go out from this place with new new resolve to love you, to trust you, and to obey you, Lord. For as long as life remains in us, for as long as we have breath, let our life be pleasing to you. Let us praise you, Lord, all the days of our lives. And for now, Lord, may the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. As I preach, as I, as I speak, we pray, Father, that the word that comes from my mouth will accomplish the purpose that it has been sent forth to accomplish. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's have a seat. Well, it's uh, well, good morning, Praise Center. It's a privilege to be able to minister the word of God to you this morning. Uh, well, I was, I was a bit worried uh, last week <laughs> because Pastor Agus sort of told me that, oh, it might be pos- it's possible that you will be here, just five of you. I was like, oh, cool. This is my first time in this church, and I don't get to see anyone. I just talk to the camera. But it's good to see people here. So at least I see some people. At least I see, well, I, I get to know some people. And uh, it, it's, it's hard. It's really tough to speak to a camera, right? I think Pastor Agus will will be able to will know like it's very difficult like what, what, what does, do, do people actually listen to you do people actually agree what we, you are saying or do they understand or you know for all I know that people are just oh, like that you, you never know uh, and uh, but it's great to be able to meet with uh, many of you here uh, but uh, for those of us who are still online I hope that our time will still be fruitful uh, despite being physically distant, we trust that as we open the Word of God together, I trust that God will accomplish His purpose in our lives. Uh, so thank you for uh, Pastor Agus and Tante Lilian for extending uh, the invitation for me to preach this morning. Well, before I unpack today's passage, uh, Pastor Agus asked me to introduce myself a little bit. So uh, I was born in a small town called Samarinda in East Kalimantan, Indonesia. It's a small town where everyone knows everyone. And then I moved to Surabaya for my high school and university. That's where I met my wife, Maria. We've been married for almost 19 years, and you'll be able to see the pictures of my, the picture of my family. God has blessed us with four gorgeous children. Our first is a daughter, Jochebed, which means Jehovah is 
glorious. She is 16 and a half. I can't believe that she's going to drive soon. It's so scary. But anyway, <laughs> I don't know how, how you managed to go through it, Pastor August. Anyway, then comes our son, uh, Joe Cannon. His name means Jehovah is gracious. He's almost 15. And our third is daughter, Jolene, just over there. Uh, her name means Jehovah is God. She's nearly 11. And our last one, we, we, we wanted to name her Josephine. But Josephine means Jehovah will add. But we thought four children is enough. So we, we, we named her something else instead. So we named her Joanna. Uh, her name also means the same as our son's name, which means Jehovah is gracious. She's eight years old. Indeed, God is gracious. God is really gracious to us. And we pray, uh, my daily prayer for them is God save them. They are my children, but make them yours. Make them your children and use them for your kingdom's purpose. And I've been in full-time ministry uh, as a pastor at Cross Culture Church of Christ in the city for almost 13 years. I came here in 2001. I studied IT. Um, I worked as a programmer for a number of years. And then I also taught, lectured at RMIT for a number of years as well. But God has his plan. God has his different plan, right? Uh, just now, I forgot the name, just now the, the, the service leader, the one who welcomed us in the, in the beginning, talking about the lamp unto my feet, the lamp unto my feet. And God is just saying that, it's Kevin, yeah? Kevin, God is saying that, well, just trust me, just take a step, just another step, just another step. As long as you glorify me wherever you turn, and I will make straight your path. And well, here I am now, 13 years later, still serving God, and God has been really gracious. And last year, Maria and I started the ministry for the young families at Cross Culture as well, because we've been, gone, we've been through that ourselves, so we thought it's time to equip and help and encourage other young families. So that's a bit of who we are, but regardless of our background, uh, we're all on the same journey. We're all here on the same journey of growing in our trust in Jesus, in our trust in God, and hoping, hoping to help others to do the same along the way. And when Pastor August invited, invited me to speak, I asked, of course, the first question I asked is, what will be the, the most helpful topic, the most suitable topic for Praise Center? And with Pastor August's guidance, today I'm going to unpack Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. If you know, the book of Revelation is basically Apostle John writing pages and pages of notes of what Jesus has revealed to him. That kind of reminds me of my uh, school days in Indonesia. That's what we do, right? The teachers just say something. We just, just keep writing. Just keep writing and keep writing. We don't understand what he's saying. We just keep writing. And that might be what Apostle John went through. He, he didn't know what, what was going on. But he just, God says, Jesus says, write it down. All right, yes, sir. He just keep writing down. And in those pages of notes, Jesus has some important messages to his churches. He's got his letters to seven particular churches. And this, this morning, we'll look at uh, the, the letter to the church in Ephesus. Now, talking about Apostle John, as a church, uh, you are currently going through the Gospel of John. And in John chapter 20, verse 30 to 31, John tells us exactly why he wrote his Gospel. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, which means that there are many, many more things to, to say, but he couldn't say it all. But these are written 
so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. That you may believe, and by believing you may have life. And we, when we believe in Jesus Christ, indeed we are saved. We have a new life in Christ. And, and if you remember the first time you became a Christian, you know, it was exciting. You began to see life differently. You, the, the old has gone, the new has come. You began to develop new habits and new behaviors as a Christian as you see your life being changed by the gospel. Everything feels colorful. However, for many Christians, for many Christians, we can be caught in the flow of life with all the chores, choices, and challenges. You still behave as, Christ as Christians. You, everything about you feels and smells like a Christian. However, if we are not careful, something deep inside is beginning to dim. What was colorful slowly turns monochromatic. What was vibrant gradually turns monotonous. And what was joyful slowly becomes a burdensome chore. And little that you know, little that you know, you're just one suffering away or one suffering or one conflict, one disappointment, one temptation, one major challenge away from totally abandoning Christ. You just don't know it yet. And this is a sobering assessment that Jesus gave to a church in the book of Revelation, the church of Ephesus. And maybe this might be applicable for some of us here as well. So my hope and prayer is that as we dissect this passage together, we will be more aware of our spiritual condition and we will make the necessary changes so that we will not end up like the church in Ephesus. So as we look at this passage, my first question to us is this. Are we a busy church? Are we a busy church? Are you a busy, are you a busy Christian? And the, and the church in Ephesus was a busy church, a busy church. Now, Jesus starts with an encouragement in Revelation 2, verse 2. He says, I know your works. I know your works. Friends, brothers, and sisters in Christ, Jesus knows your works. When you serve, when you do good works, when you, when you sacrificially love people, when you are serving, there are times you don't get the thanks that you deserve or the thanks that you feel you deserve. So you wonder, is it worth it? Is it worth repeating? Is it worth doing it again and again and again? But take courage because God knows. God knows. When you don't feel appreciated, know this. Jesus noticed every good work that you have done. So keep on doing good works because Jesus sees and He knows. And He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. And this is a church where its members are serving tirelessly in ministries. They are known for their good works in, and they are known for the various services in the community. Now, Pastor Agus shared with me that last year, you as a church packed groceries and distributed them to many people who were going through, who were going through financial hardships during the early days of pandemic. It was amazing, it was fantastic, and people appreciated it very much. Now, the church in Ephesus would have done the same. They would have done the same, and maybe even more, maybe even more. If this is, today, if this is in today's world, 
pastors from all other churches would have gone to efficient church to just learn to do what they are doing. What is the secret that you can get your members to do what, you, what they are doing? Yeah. And not only that, they are, they are holding on to their doctrinal purity. He says, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Now, it's quite interesting that if you look around the churches, of course, every church has their strength and has their weaknesses. Some churches are good at worship, but they are weak in these particular areas. of areas. And other churches may be strong in teaching, but maybe they are not so good at social justice, all different, different aspects. But here we see a church that is good at both. That is good all, in all dimensions. They are really good. Now, you, you have to imagine that Ephesus was a metropolitan hub in ancient Greece. It was a haven for philosophers to come and to spread their teachings. They've got massive amphitheater where it's, it is a platform for philosophers to just start telling, I've got, I've got news or I've got new teaching, I've got revelation, I've got new insights, and people are eager to learn. And some of them even claim to be the apostles. Some of them even claim to be apostles and try to spread false teachings in the church. And Jesus says that you are diligent in testing all these teachers. And you know who is teaching the truth and who is not. And in verse 6 as well, Revelation chapter 2, verse 6, it says, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we don't have enough information about who these Nicolaitans are, but it is safe to assume that they are a cult group that, spread, that tries to spread false teachings in the church with some of their twisted practices as well. Now you might wonder how, how did the Ephesian church hold on very, very, very well to the doctrinal purity? Well, if you read the book of Acts, Paul spent three years in Ephesus. And that was the, that's the longest Paul ever stayed in a particular city because Paul knew that Ephesus was a very important city. And we also know that Timothy was a bishop in Ephesus as well. And not only that, we also know that Apostle John also spent his last days in Ephesus. And John was believed to have written his gospel while he was in Ephesus. So the church in Ephesus has grown under some stellar Christian leaders. No wonder they were quite solid in their doctrine. It shows how important a faithful teaching pastor is to a church. And and furthermore, the efficient Christians were a bunch of strong and faithful Christians. In verse 3, uh, Jesus says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Now, Ephesus is where the temple of Artemis was located. This temple was a massive structure of 110 meters by 55 meters. It's around 15 times the size of a basketball court, and this is just the, re the, the, the remnants of it. But if you look at the, the they try to sketch the, um, the original ma majestic building, it was roughly the size of the American football field, but it is 20 plus meters high. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It is the largest place 
of worship for the Greek goddess Artemis. On the, the Roman call it Diana, the Greek call it Artemis. And the worship of Artemis involves grotesque sexual immoralities. So Ephesus as a city was full of sexual promiscuity. And Ephesus was also a trade center with huge marketplace called Agora. Again, we can see the remain of the Agora. People from other cities come to Ephesus for trade. And to participate in the marketplace, you must pledge your allegiance to the emperor. Emperor worship was part of the daily life of the Ephesians. And if you don't, persecution will come your way. So Christians in Ephesus, they were facing temptations and persecutions, temptations and persecutions wherever they turn. But Jesus says, I know you are enduring patiently for the sake of my name. So this is the church in Ephesus. They are orthodox in their doctrine. They hold on to the pure apostolic teaching. They stand firm under persecutions. They don't give him to idolatries. They don't give him to emperor worship. In a city where there is full of immoralities, they resist evil and temptations. And they are also known for their fervent ministries, fervent work services in the community. If this church existed today, this would be a place to be for Christians. This church will be featured in any Christian magazine. Many of us would be ashamed if we compare ourselves to these efficient Christians. If Jesus comes and says all this to Pastor Agus and Tante Lillian about praise center, they will be very humbled and they will be very pleased. No doubt about it. However, however, we wish that Jesus' assessment had stopped there. But it doesn't. As Jesus digs deeper, there is something rotten underneath all this busyness. And the next question that we have to ask is this, are we a loving church? Are we a loving church? Sandwiched between Jesus' praises in verse 2 and two, 3 and then in verse 6, sandwiched in between is one glaring criticism that Jesus has against the church. You do this well, you do that well, what you are doing is commendable and you hate what I hate, fantastic, but... I have this against you. Friends, when Jesus says this to you, I have this against you, you better listen. And you better listen carefully. And just one thing, just one sentence. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Just one thing. One statement, but it is a severe and clear indictment against this church. You have abandoned your first love. Now, for those of you who are here who are in a relationship, you know what first love is. I met Bill. Bill was married three months ago. So you remember all about it, right, Bill? Sorry to highlight you, Bill. <laughs> I just, just met you, so I thought might as well make fun of your sorry. But anyway, you can, you can remember, right, how it feels when you first fell in love, fell in love with your boyfriend, with your girlfriend, with your spouse. You think about him. You cannot wait to talk to her again. You love spending time with him. You can chat for hours with one another. You pay attention to everything that she says, every little thing that she does. You used to hate kimchi, 
but because he loves kimchi, suddenly kimchi tastes sweet to you. You used to love fishing, but because she hates water, fishing suddenly loses its appeal. Or using Kylie Minogue's words, I just can't get you out of my head. And this is, this is what Jesus has against the church. You used to be like that. But now, where am I in your head? Where am I in your head? They have abandoned their first love. In their busyness, they forgot why they do what they're doing. They totally forgot why they do what they're doing. And you see, this tells us one thing. This tells us one thing. It is possible for Christians to do all these amazing religious works, to do all these amazing services, and to do all these great works without love for Jesus. It is possible for us to turn up early every Sunday to practice in a worship band. By the way, it was fantastic worship. I enjoyed it really, really, really much. But, but it is possible for us to do all that because of our selfish ambition and not because of our love for Jesus. It is possible for us to visit the sick, comfort the grieving, and to give to the poor, but we do it because of our reputation or other reasons, not because of our love for Jesus. It is possible for pastors to preach every Sunday passionately, but we do it because of our own selfish ambition. It is possible for us to guard ourselves against false doctrine, to be quick to point out they're wrong, they're wrong, they're wrong, and we do it not because of our love for Jesus. And the late Warren Wiersbe in his commentary writes this, what is first love? It is the devotion to Christ. Devotion to Christ that is so often characterizes, that so often characterizes the new believer. Vervent, personal, uninhibited, excited, and openly displayed. It is the honeymoon love of the husband and wife. And for those of us who are married, we know that as the marriage goes on, it is possible for husband and wife to still live under one roof, to run and manage the household really, really well, but to forget why exactly they wanted to live together in the first place. You live daily lives side by side, but you don't face one another. You're a good team. You are a good team. You look after, you parent your children really well, but you forget, you take each other for granted, and your marriage has turned to be a project, become a project that you need to display to your friends, your families, and your neighbors. And friends, if that's you, you are just one conflict away, one major challenge away, one disappointment away from breaking up totally. And the same with our Christianity. When our religious performance becomes our identity, when our ministry becomes a show, then don't be surprised that we're just one major temptation, one major challenge away from leaving it all behind. You see, when Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians, when Paul wrote the letters to the Ephesians, Paul includes the famous passage of the whole armor of God. Paul knew, Paul knew the situation in Ephesus. That's why he wrote the, arm, the whole armor of God because Paul knew that these Christians would be bombarded from all other directions with temptations, persecution, challenges. That's why Paul says, you have the armor of God, wear it, wear them well, so that they can stand firm in the midst of all these challenges. 
And the Ephesians, they wear and they, they adorn the whole armor of God very well. But they forgot Paul's exhortation. In Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 to 2, Paul says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, as children who are loved by God, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In two verses, the word love appears three times. And then Ephesians 6, Paul talks about the whole armor of God and he closed, this, he closed the letter, he closed Ephesians' letter with this, peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Again, in two verses, the word love appears three times. They forgot, they forgot that it's all about love. They forgot that it's all about love. Surprisingly, in the, in the New Testament, if you look at the New Testament, the Gospel of John and the first letter of John is the two books that have got the word love the most. 40 plus in each, in each book. In the short letter, in the short first letter of John, it's got 46 occurrences of the word love. 40 plus in, in a short letter. Because John, well, John really loves Jesus and John knows how Jesus loves him. But after those two, the second one is actually the letter to Ephesians. The letter to Ephesus. 20, at least 20 occurrences of the word love. But the Ephesians somehow in their busyness, they forgot that it's all about love. It's all about love for Jesus. And Apostle Paul says it very well in 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. It's all nothing. Without love, it's all nothing. That's why Jesus wants them to go back. Go back. Go back to what you had at first. Therefore, as a church, let's get busy, but not busy doing stuff. Let's get busy loving. Let's get busy loving. And notice one thing here. According to Jesus, forgetting to love, forgetting the first love, is not just a minor flaw that needs slight tweak or slight, you know, slight change or slight modification. No, Jesus says this, remember therefore from where you have fallen. It's not just an oops, let me fix it situation. No, they have fallen. Forgetting to love is a grave sin that needs serious and genuine repentance. And that's why Jesus says, repent. It's not just maybe turn a little bit, maybe turn two degrees, three degrees, make some course correction. No, repent, turn back. You're busy, but you're busy going in the wrong direction. Turn back, do the works you did at first. Now, when you see this 
if you look at Jesus' letters to the other churches in Revelation, you can see that the church in Ephesus does not look as bad as the others. There's only one church where Jesus praised only, but the other six churches, Ephesus came up on top. So it's easy for us to be, to, to be defensive and say, but we're better than that church. We're better than that church. We're better than that church. I'm better than that Christians. I'm better than that. But Jesus says, no, don't compare yourself with others. Listen to my assessment and repent. Repent. And the warning here is very clear. If they don't, get, if they don't go back to their first love, if they keep doing what they are doing without the love for Jesus, no matter how impressive they all look, they will all amount to nothing. Jesus says, I will come to you. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place until it, until, unless you repent. Now, removing now lampstand in the tabernacle was the only thing that provides light for the priest to carry out their priestly duties. So removing the lampstand means what? Shut down the temple. All this religious service that you're doing in the temple, just stop it. Just stop it. So removing lampstand is the same as, you know, when Jesus says, if you are not rekindling the love that you have for me, might as well shut down the church. Because it's all pointless to me. And Jesus warns Jesus warn similarly in Matthew chapter 7, right? He says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? In your name, drive out demons. In your name, perform many miracles. Now, how many of you have driven demons out? How many of you have performed miracles? None. Maybe some of you, I don't know, but chances are not many of us. But these are the people who can say, we did this, we did that, we did amazing works. But then Jesus says, but I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from isn't that sad? You do all these tireless service on earth and you go to Jesus. Jesus, look at, look at all that I've done. And Jesus says, who are you again? <laughs> Hang on. Not that, Jesus, not that Jesus doesn't know you, but he knows, but you know what I mean. He'll be very sad. You realize that I should have repented. I should have turned back. I should have reflected on my own life. Why am I doing what I'm doing? On the other hand, Jesus gives them a promise. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus specifically used the word conquers because it's a hard thing to do. But with the Spirit of God living in us, we have the power, we have the strength. And he says, I will grant to eat the tree of life. The tree of life is a symbol of eternal life. The life that Adam and Eve originally had in the Garden of Eden and the life that believers will have in the new heaven and the new earth. This is the promise if we go back to our first love again. So the question is, how do we get back to that first love again? Well, how do couples get back to their first love again? How do couples rekindle their first love again? Well, this is what you do. You date each other again. You go on dates. You go on a walk, just the two of you. You've been so busy looking after children. Maybe 
get a babysitter. Just go, just the two of you. Pursue each other again. Go on date night. Spend quality time with one another and reevaluate everything that you do as a couple and get to know each other's heart again. Ask deep questions about one another again. You know, that's the thing that I, I love doing with my wife. Sometimes I just ask, what is it? Do you remember last time when I first met you, when you first met me? Of course, I ask her more, but what did she think about me last time? You know, that kind of stuff, but you know. That's just how it is. But, but that's how you rekindle. That's how you rekindle your first love again. You know, for those of you who are married, I'm sure, I'm sure Pastor Agus will say this to Tante Lilian, and Tante Lilian will say this to Pastor Agus regularly. I love you. I love you. When you go out from home, I love you. When you come back from work, I love you. When you, when you do whatever, just I love you. I love you. But when was the last time, let me ask you this question. When was the last time you say this to your spouse? I like you. I really enjoy spending time with you. That's good. That's fantastic. It's so easy. You know the word, I love you, I love you, I love you. becomes a habit. But what about, you know what? I think I like you. Oh, don't say that. But, <laughs> but that's, trust me, try that. You know, I really enjoy spending time with you. Every day, I cannot wait to go home and be with you. And similarly, when was the last time you can gently say to Jesus, Jesus, I like you. I really enjoy spending time with you. It's easy for us to pray. God, I praise you. God, I love you. Yes, we all must, we, we must do that. Yes, it all has to come up generally from our heart. But when was the last time? Just the two of you, you and Jesus, you and God, and says, God, I like spending time with you. So the same advice for, is for us now. Pursue Jesus again. Spend quality time with Him again. Now for some of you, it might be sitting in, your, sitting in your closet just praising God, just worshiping Him, just praying. For some of you, it might be walking, take a walk, take a long walk on the beach, just you and God. But take intentional time to be alone in His presence. Listen to Him, talk to Him. Re-evaluate re everything that you do. And allow God to inspect your heart in the quietness of your room or in the quietness of that beach or in the quietness of the park. Allow God to inspect your heart. Now, how, do, how long do we do this? I will say, as long as it takes for you to fall in love with Jesus all over again. As many days as it takes until you can enjoy Him again. As you reacquaint yourself with Jesus, as you get back to the beauty of the gospel, you are reminded of Jesus' love for you when he died on the cross and you will slowly grow again in your love for Jesus. I want to highlight I want to highlight a significant point here though. This isn't a command this is not a command to abandon our ministries. No. Jesus did not stop he did not say stop doing good works. No, he didn't say that. He didn't say stop doing good works just spend time with me. No. But Jesus wants them to infuse their good works with their love for Jesus. Jesus wants them to have the right motivation for their good works. So as you spend time with Jesus, as you date Jesus again, or rather, in all honesty, as you allow Jesus to date you again, your heart will grow in love towards Jesus. Your service, your works, your ministry might look the same from the outside, but your heart has changed. It is no longer a routine or a chore. It becomes a joy. 
Let me close the sermon by recalling a short interaction between Jesus and Peter. Jesus appeared to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias with breakfast ready, and when they had finished eating, Jesus turned to Peter, and he asked Peter a crucial question. Now, if you know the story, Peter, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, when the night Jesus, before crucifixion, Peter denied Jesus three times. And Peter was devastated, and he thought that Jesus would no longer love him anymore. Jesus would no longer want him to be his disciple anymore. But Jesus asked Peter three times as well, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you love me more than everything else in this world? Do you love me? Now, this is not a harsh confrontation by Jesus. This is a loving invitation by Jesus. Jesus is inviting, inviting Peter to repent from his sins and to love Jesus again. So friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus is asking us this question as well today. Do you love me? Do you love me? So are we a busy church or are we a loving church? I hope we'll be, we will get busy loving. So let me pray. Thank you so much, Lord, for this revelation that you gave to Apostle John. Indeed, it is a reflection of our hearts as well at times. Many times we forget why we do what we do. At times I forget why I do what I'm doing. So remind me every day, every day, Lord, as I spend time with you, remind me again, remind us again of your love for us, your immense love for us in Jesus Christ so that we know why we do what we do, so that we will, so that we will, so that our ministry will become a joy to us, so that we know your love for us and we can love you again help us to encourage each other not to get busy doing stuff but to get busy loving Jesus thank you Lord help us to repent for some of us here who have gone so far away from you pray Lord that they will repent you are the God who always ready who is always ready to welcome back those who are straight who are going astray for those of us here rest our body is in this church but our soul is somewhere else our mind is somewhere our heart is somewhere else we pray brother that they will come back to you they'll come to Jesus once again and fall in love with you